Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I want to start off the talk tonight with um, a teaching from uh, one of the most um, important uh, sources of Dharma wisdom in our culture, um, Calvin and Hobbes. So this is a four-framed cartoon. First frame, Calvin is saying, here I am, happy and content. Second frame, but not euphoric. Third frame, I'm no longer happy. I'm frustrated. My day is ruined. Fourth frame, I need to quit thinking while I'm ahead. I want to uh, talk tonight on the subject of contentment, of being with things just as they are, yata bhuta, as, uh, as I think it's been mentioned here. Uh, the Buddha said, contentment is our greatest wealth. <clears throat> and as I uh, talk about it, I want to give a, a bit of a caveat at the beginning uh, because one can have the idea of being uh, so content with how things are that there's not a need to um, put energy into practice. Well, I'll just, I'll just uh, coast along. And this is the one area that the Buddha warned against contentment. And I'll read to you, uh, you can find it a passage from the Anguttara Nikaya, where he he warns uh, against uh, complacency and um, just coasting and warns against contentment. He says, two things I came to know well, not to be content with good states of mind so far achieved and to be unremitting in one's commitment to liberation. So there's this paradox of showing up in a wholehearted way with sincerity, with care, with um, love of the Dharma, love of the truth. And what we're asked to do in our showing up is to be with things just as they are. I was talking with Jaya a bit earlier. Is this paradox that until you're free of greed, hatred, and delusion, there's more work to do. And uh, the the term purification has come up before, that we're in a process of purification. And it just so happens that every moment that we can come into our experience fully without grasping for any more, 
we are conditioning that response in future moments. And so that is laying the groundwork for the purification to happen. Everything will come up in your willingness to be with things just as they are. And learning that you have the capacity to be with them, not just the capacity, but beyond the workability that they're, um, they're the doorway to freedom, um, then that becomes your new reference point. That becomes your home. So uh, as I talk about this, I just want to underscore contentment doesn't mean laziness or complacency with our practice, but rather the continual uh, meeting the moment with this capacity to be with it just as it is. I'm going to switch this because... Um, so, contentment. It is uh, very closely related to what I spoke about a couple of nights ago, trust. Remember? Trusting in the process, trusting in our capacity to meet the moment, trusting in our awareness, allows us to settle into the here and now and see that there's a fullness right here. That we don't need to go looking for anything else. And when the future moments come, that we can deal with them as, uh, as we meet them with a wise response. It's akin to trust. It's also very closely related to the um, quality of renunciation the word nekama in Pali. The Buddha in one discourse talks about how renunciation he saw led him to real happiness and peace. And that is uh, one, of the, one of the components of wise intention that we are um, learning to do without, to let go and to um, be satisfied and to, to feel a sense of um, enjoying simplicity. You know, in the, uh, the metta uh, chant that you do each, each evening, it says uh, one should be content and easily satisfied. Isn't that... Uh, a wonderful pointer to a fullness of heart. So I'll talk a little bit first in terms of renunciation and then more into um, contentment directly. Renunciation, uh, which sounds like a, a kind of um, sacrifice, is not, is not a... Um, an unpleasant thing. It's actually discerning what we need from what we want. Our wants are endless. But what we need is really very little. Have you seen that? 
You know, lunch is the big hit of the day here. (laughs) And it's quite enough, you know. Oh my goodness, there's a new salad dressing. How wonderful. It's a big deal. Because we've kind of gone through a fasting process. We fasted from stimulation and from all the... um, all the acquiring and the uh, the speed that we're that we're asked to deal with out in our world, and in that letting go, there's a great relief and there's an appreciation of things in in uh, on a whole new level. You know, when you first get here, it seems like there's you're giving up an awful lot, but as you go through that detox of stimulation, then there's a real fullness. And actually you can get overwhelmed when you've got a lot of choices. I'm just remembering now the f- one of my um, uh, early uh, long periods of practice, the three, uh, three-month course uh, that I was sitting, and it was... Uh, I was very content with most of the the meals, but Thanksgiving, when Thanksgiving came along, I don't know if they do it these days at at IMS, but they used to make a big deal with lots of different dishes and five different desserts. This This one Thanksgiving, I'll never forget. And I, I was really, I had been quite mindful in my, in my eating practice uh, until that meal, all of a sudden I was eating so that I could get to the dessert and which dessert would I choose? And I, of course I took a little sliver of each. Uh, and uh, I was full. I was a little overwhelmed. I was blown away. And uh, I think that was probably why they gave all of this food to just show us (laughs) this is what we're doing. The point got home. It did. Mm. And we're up against a whole lot in our culture. This uh, This is something to really understand. I want to um, read to you, I I read earlier in the uh, the first evening of the retreat, uh, some of my favorite writer, Mark Morford, uh, wanted to read from his column this uh, two weeks ago. The title is called The Devil in the Pie Chart. It's a thoroughly stupid, weirdly inelegant way to exist, isn't it? Contrary to nature and time, insulting to the very dignity of the soul. Yet here it is, the single most toxic, fossilized, hammered-down maxim our culture, along with most of the barely civilized world, lives by, pounded into our fundamental ethos since birth. Do you know this toxic law? I bet you do. Companies will do anything to accomplish it. Cities obsess over it like a dark religion. Populations are viciously addicted to it. And of course, capitalism has it tattooed onto its very heart, a blood-soaked dragon of relentless, nearly unendurable pressure, sneering and cruel, 
only fully satiated when it's burned everything to the ground. Of course you know it. It's the maxim of furious, non-stop growth at all costs. It is the vast, overarching demand that everything we humans create, produce, and desire must keep growing and expanding, adding to and complexifying, without stop and without fail, because to pause, to slow down, to contract, to calm the hell down even for a moment means fiscal doom, cultural irrelevance, death. Ergo, ergo the ruthless mantra, more product, more stores, more bodies and more customers and a fatter bottom line. My favorite example of this, of the moment, here is Apple, perhaps the most amusingly admired, debated, storied company in modern existence. Apple just announced that it sold an all-time record 51 million iPhones in the last few months, which if I'm calculating correctly, and I'm probably not, is about seven phones every second or about 150 in the time it took you to read this paragraph. Do you know what happened next? right after Apple's amazing announcement? That's right, the stock price plunged nearly 10%. Because Wall Street is diseased and insane. Because Wall Street is full of tiny-souled, cackling man-demons who measure human existence the way the devil measures time in units of potential pain. See, Wall Street, employing its trademark rule of grow or else nonsense, thought Apple should have sold 54 million phones, not just 51. And therefore, they think the company might have peaked and might not continue its stratospheric growth into the next year. In short, Apple made billions of dollars and outpaced itself in every category, but it still wasn't enough to feed the dumb, ravenous beast. It never really is. You can see the absurdity, no? More importantly, you can see the danger to all life, health, human becoming. We know such a modality is completely unsustainable. We know that the world, being a finite, delicately balanced organism, will not put up with our BS for much longer. Hell, she's already started to slough us off en masse. This is the disease of our culture. I've been um, very much um, into a, um, a singer recently uh, that I've been trying to turn the world on a woman named Vienna Tang who wrote an uh, who did a, her recent album is called Ames and in one of these songs which I almost played but uh, I thought better of it yeah it's brilliant <clears throat> uh, I'll read you the lyrics it's a song called the hymn of axiom axiom spelled a c x i o m is, as one article I read, uh, called The Most Dangerous Company You've Never Heard Of. 
It's a, a billion-dollar company that is uh, one of the leading data mining companies. So they're the ones that can see what you've purchased and anticipate what you want next. Right? You know those, right? All of us. I took a, a, a flight to Madison, Wisconsin, and I started getting all of these pop-ups Hey, here's another cheap flight to Madison. Here's an even better, you know. How do they know I went to Madison? They know. <laughs> so this is called the Hymn of Axiom, and it's um, this beautiful, creepy song um, written from the point of view of the database. <clears throat> I'll just read you some of it. <clears throat> it's extraordinary. Somebody hears you. You know that. You know that. Somebody hears you. You know that inside. Someone is learning the colors of all your moods to say just the right thing and show you that you're understood. Here you're known. Someone is gathering every crumb you drop, these mindless decisions and moments you long forgot. Let our formulas fill your soul will divine your artesian source in your mind, marshal, feed, and force. Our machines will design you a perfect love, or better still, a perfect lust. Oh, how glorious, glorious. A brand new need is born. Now we possess you. You'll own that. You'll own that. Now we possess you. You'll own that in time. Now we will build you an endlessly upward world. Reach in your pocket, embrace you for all your worth. Is that wrong? Isn't that what you want? Amen. The lyrics uh, don't do justice to the, to the music. Uh, but you get the picture. This is what we're up against. As maybe some of you are familiar with this, my favorite example, the gold shivers. Beautiful ad, draped, woman, very happy, draped in gold. <clears throat> the gold shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth. Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. Second page, it's a two-page ad. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye, to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. Among life's pleasures, count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. Yeah, yeah. It's brilliant, right? You might not even care about jewelry, but you read that and you say, I'd like some too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we're up against. So this is not a, a small little thing that we're we're playing around with. We've been so conditioned. The um, economist Victor Lebeau 
was writing uh, just after World War II, just when the consumer society was reaching full, full bloom. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, and that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. And so we are, we are consumer units. That's how we're thought of. Right? There's no end to this. Uh, when John D. Rockefeller was the richest person in the world, someone asked him, um, how much money will be enough? And his answer was, just a little more. Creepy, isn't it? (laughs) Now, in contrast to this, we have what what is called in Buddhism, Moderation, wise moderation, uh, matanuta. This is uh, the uh, Buddhist uh, scholar and monk and uh, economist, uh, P.A. Paiuto says, matanuta, the amount that's just right. It is an awareness of that optimum point where enhancement of true well-being coincides with the experience of satisfaction. Consumption balanced to an amount appropriate with well-being rather than to the satisfaction of endless desires. In contrast to maximum consumption leading to more satisfaction, we have moderate or wise consumption leading to well-being. So it's not saying that you should deprive yourself or um, uh, be, uh, be an ascetic. Even the Buddha, after being an ascetic for six years, said, oh, that's not the way. The middle way is the way. And to feel a sense of completion and knowing when enough is enough, this is wise wise attitude. And this leads to this understanding of what contentment really is. And usually it's a lot less than we think. As a, as a, a monk or a nun knows, you know, four things, food, sh- robe, shelter, and medicine, that's enough. And some of the happiest people I've met can do with little now, it's true that there's a lot of people in this world who are um, struggling and uh, they're, um, they're subject to uh, tremendous um, uh, oppression because they're not given their basic needs. So I don't want to, I want to really acknowledge that many, many people um, a robe and a bowl is not enough when you've got a family to feed and, and there's, uh, there's basic needs in living in, in our society. But 
for most of us, especially here in, in, in our culture, in the, the more um, privileged, and it's important to see the privilege, um, there's an endless um, wanting and craving in the mind. And that we're conditioned for this. This is how the game is played. A number of years ago uh, in Thailand, there was a movement uh, against contentment. Um, This is in the 50s and 60s. And I'll read to you a little from this really great book called Hooked, uh, edited by Stephanie Kaza. Buddhist writings on greed, desire, and the urge to consume. Um, In the late 1950s and 60s, as Thailand launched itself into the international marketplace, the Thai government of the time made the extraordinary move of specifically requesting that leading abbots and teachers of Thai Buddhist community not encourage santuti, which is the Pali word for contentment and matanuta, moderation, that they not encourage it in the population. In their drive to encourage productivity and consumerism, the political powers regarded moderation and contentment as obstacles to their program. And I've read that the the U.S. was not a small player in this this program. Sad to say, most of the monastic community acquiesced to this request, being culturally conditioned to not cause conflict and to maintain the status quo. However, one prominent teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, had no fear of those in power. Although he had official ranks and titles, he was not at all worried about losing them if he spoke up. He came right out and openly challenged the politicians, asking them if they felt they were wiser than the Buddha. As he said, surely the Buddha would never have extolled qualities so highly and universally regarded if there was something that could possibly be harmful. And by his own strength of character, um, the monastic community uh, relented. Even though he was heavily criticized for getting involved with politics and rocking the boat. It was hard for anyone to fault him on his scholarship, his reasoning, or his straightforwardness. And his voice was heard, and eventually the government ban on contentment was lifted. (laughs) It's subversive to be content. Isn't that amazing? A Buddhist country saying contentment is harmful to us. Thank goodness for someone of his courage. Hmm. So this is really seeing how the, the wanting mind is the second noble truth. It contracts the mind and it contracts the heart. And I wanted to, I thought we'd, uh, we'd apply it to our, our practice here and just seeing a few different ways that, uh, that it manifests. Mm. Just one little exercise. Close your eyes for a moment.
and just sit here and relax and feel your breath. Maybe listen to sounds. Just be in the moment. And just uh, let yourself feel the fullness of that. And now think of something that you want. Something that, something, someone, think, think, just bring a want to the mind and let yourself get into it. And notice how it feels, notice the difference. And now go back to just listening to the words or being with the breath and notice something in this moment right now to appreciate. Maybe the fact that you're just here alive. Just Get a sense of the difference in feeling the ease and openness of this moment being enough. Okay. Here's another little exercise. Think of somebody that you have um, a lot of um, just genuine metaphor and uh, send them some metta and you might imagine seeing them receive it oh may you really be happy and may you be peaceful you might see them smiling and enjoying receiving that you're just wishing them well And now think of how it is when you want something from them or don't want them to disappoint you. Notice how that feels. I won't leave you here. Once again, take a breath and just send them some love, just wishing them well, where you don't want anything from them other than they're up for them to be happy and just sending that outflow from a place of fullness. May you, may you really be happy and feel inner peace. Notice how that feels. Okay, you can open your eyes. Do you notice the difference between just this fullness, this outflow of, of love, and as soon as you want something, it's not enough. The mind contracts, the heart contracts. <clears throat> Vipassana romances, I'm sure most of you are familiar with Vipassana romances, VRs, where somebody just kind of catches your eye and uh, the mind can get lost in dwelling on 
them. Uh, very instructive. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But when it's here, you can learn so much about the wanting mind, that this, this moment isn't quite enough. On, this, on one retreat, I, one of my earlier retreats, one of my first retreats, it was a big retreat at, at Yucca Valley, maybe about 150 people or so, and there was somebody who really caught my eye. And then there was somebody who, uh, this is, by the way, before I, I met my wife, who I'm very happily married to. Yeah. Just in case you're listening, Jane, you know, uh, way before I, I met her. <clears throat> and somebody caught my eye. Definitely, she was appealing. And then there was somebody else who also was attractive, but to me, uh, not quite as much as the first. And then there was a third and a fourth. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I'd, be doing, I'd be doing walking meditation and I'd see, oh, there's number three going by. Yeah. <laughs> and what happened uh, on this retreat was it just so happened that the first, that number one left the retreat in the middle of the retreat. Uh, much to my surprise, all of a sudden the Zafu was gone, the cushion and the shawl and everything. And, yeah. And for a little while, I said, oh no, so I'm going to miss that person. And in very short order, I actually forgot about her. Everybody else moved up a notch. <laughs> it was so clear that it was just wanting, looking for something to land on. You know, Very illuminating how in a moment from this place of peace all of a sudden it's not enough because there's something out there that's that's going to do it for us and we can have this with vrs or with um, looking forward to what's for lunch we can certainly have it with our meditation practice What's around the corner? When am I going to finally settle down? You know, this moment isn't quite good enough. When's the, the bells and whistles going to come? And even when they do come, watch out. Because when you've had a taste of it, the mind says, yeah, I like that. Give me more. How do I make that happen? This is a tremendous uh, source of dukkha. I'll share with you a story from my own practice that was very illuminating. It was on my very first retreat in Great Barrington, uh, Massachusetts in uh, 1974. And uh, I had been practicing for, for a while, but the first time I had done a retreat when on this retreat, after the settling in, I had this miracle sit that comes every now and then, amazing grace, where I sat down and it was like, it didn't matter if the bell never, never rang. You know those sits when they come? <clears throat> By the way, when they come, you don't have to get up when the bell rings, just so you know. <clears throat> 
But anyway, there I was. I was breathing in, the universe was breathing out. I was breathing out, the universe was breathing in. And it was just really delicious. And over the course of the next couple of days, every mind state besides that sweet, delicious experience, it's a little like the story I told the other night, but it's a different one. Every other mind state happened and um, I kept on, every time I'd sit, I said, how do I get this back? And I went to um, Joseph a couple of days later and I said, you know, I had it a few days ago and I lost it. How do I get it back? Please, how do I get it back? <laughs> I, I said it with great reverence and, uh, and humility. Please, how do, I, how do I get that back? And then he told me a story which I was like so grateful that it was, this is on my first retreat, I was so grateful that I got this lesson. He told me a story about, which he writes about in one of his books, uh, that um, at one point in his practice in India, he was, every time he sat, his body was like filled with light and his mind was clear. And this went on for weeks and even months, actually. This very delicious phase of practice. And then he said he he went back to the States to visit family and friends and he didn't practice with the same diligence and uh, he knew he was going to come back to Asia. And uh, he came back a couple of months later remembering very well how things had been before he, uh, he had left. And he sat down thinking about that state that he'd been in and he said, I sat down and my, it was like my, my mind was mud and my body was twisted steel. And then he looked at me and he leaned forward and he said, I was the dummy. I did it for you. You don't have to be the dummy. And I bowed and said, thank you. He said, just be with things the way they are. That's what this practice is about. And I did take him at his word. What is contentment? It's seeing this moment as complete. Yata Buddha, things are the way they are. In the Third Zen Patriarch, there's a line I love, The way is perfect like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. And in the moment of mindfulness, there's, if it's true mindfulness, there's nothing that you need to add or take away. When you're really mindful, it means you're not grasping at the pleasant, You can appreciate it fully, but you're not grasping. You're not pushing away the unpleasant. You might experience it as unpleasant, but there's not a contraction of mind or heart. And you're not identifying with the experience as 
taking ownership of it. It's just happening through you. So every moment that you're truly mindful, there's a, it's a moment of completeness. There's nothing that you need to add or take away. I don't think I did this, uh, this exercise, but um, I, I, I like it. It's, it's such a simple one. Joseph used to, used to uh, show as a way to see how mindful that there's completeness in this moment. Just put your hand in front of you. Have I done this here? I don't think so. So just move it slowly back and forth. And now put all your attention on feeling the movement. You might close your eyes as you do it. And put all your attention on feeling the movement. Right now, is there any worry or fear? any tomorrow or yesterday. There's just feeling the movement. Do you need to add anything to make it a better moving hand? Or taking anything away? Okay, you can open your eyes. That's a moment of mindfulness where there's a completeness, a balance, a connection a fullness in the moment where it's quite enough, just as it, as it is. And simply allowing it to be how it is. Nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. And that can be so whether you're feeling a sensation or you are um, feeling an emotion Pleasant or unpleasant, we can train ourselves, we can train our hearts to see, oh, and this too. This is how things are right now. You might have seen already your relationship to the experience, even if it's an unpleasant one, doesn't have to be a struggle. You can learn a lot about your reactions And even in the moment when there is a reaction and there's a version, oh, this is a version. So you're learning about that and it doesn't have to be the enemy. Oh, this is grasping. This is wanting. And that's another moment of mindfulness. That moment of mindfulness is just as liberating as feeling the breath or being in deep clarity and calm. Any moment of mindfulness is as good as any other moment of mindfulness. Joseph, um, uh, in early years, I don't know if he says it these days, he said there's one mantra that uh, he would suggest. I said, oh yeah? I had some mantra practice before I came into this. Did... uh, TM, you know, Maharishi, Mahashiogi. If it was good enough for John Lennon, it was good enough for me. So I, I had done TM for a while. He said, oh, there's one, there's one mantra if you want to use it. It's okay. Let that be your mantra. It's okay. I was speaking with somebody uh, today in an interview who had came up with that. Uh, herself, just whatever is happening, and it's okay. 
Oh, there's some sorrow here and it's okay. Oh, there's some wanting here and it's okay. In that moment where you're not struggling or fighting, it's just this moment as Ajahn Sumedho has in his instructions, oh, and it's like this. It's just like this. That is a movement towards contentment. But we often have some kind of an idea that it's got to be really sweet and delicious in order for us to either pay attention or think of it as a good meditation, a good practice. There's, There's nothing that needs to be left out of practice. Mm. I was, um, a number of years ago, I I spent some time with this wonderful teacher who had a a, a real um, um, strong impact on me, uh, Punjaji, H-W-L Punja, Punjaji or Papaji. And um, I, I went to him, he was an Advaita teacher, and I had... Uh, lots and lots of questions because he was saying, you know, oh, you know, you you don't have to practice so so hard. And he, he, he talked about meditation. Well, meditation wears out the mind until it's ready to give up. That was his, his thought. <laughs> and I wasn't quite ready to go for that. But, uh, but he um, very uh, just exuded this presence that was, that was quite... Um, quite profound and uh, towards the end of my stay I had lots of questions and he would say give me all your questions all your questions you know and then I'd I'd say I have another question Punjaji give me your questions you know finally at the very end I I said Punjaji I have one more question give me your question what is your question and I said um you know, you talk about emptiness a lot. It was one of his favorite words. He said, you talk about emptiness, I said, you talk about emptiness so much. Um, when, when Buddhists talk about emptiness, it seems so um, solemn and serious. You know, the, the profound understanding of emptiness. When you talk about emptiness, you're laughing and and uh, just radiating and kind of very light. And why is your emptiness so much more fun than (laughs) than ours? And and he said, um, well, you know, if you think that uh, that profound understanding, if you've had that experience in the middle of a very still, quiet meditation, you might be um, have the misunderstanding that the quiet and the stillness is where you'll discover emptiness, and that the uh, the activity and the aliveness and the um, uh, the other states other than stillness aren't uh, aren't quite the same in discovering it. He said. I have a very different emptiness. My my emptiness rejects nothing. Sorrow, joy, love, 
confusion, my, nothing is rejected from my emptiness. And then he laughed. <laughs> and I said, oh yeah, I like that. Uh, of course. It's not any different than the, the deepest understanding of Buddha Dharma. It's all here. There's nothing rejected. As soon as there's any kind of rejecting, there's aversion and we've just contracted the mind again. So, contentment is first about allowing, opening up ourselves to this moment and allowing things to be just the way they are. And in that allowing, there's a feeling of wholeness and sufficiency and completeness. There's nothing that's missing from this. Nothing. And we don't have to compound our problems in thinking that something is missing. All we need to do is be here. See, it's all here. And see through any kind of wanting and just letting go of thinking that it's out there that we're going to find the peace that we're looking for. Here's another little exercise since uh, um, I'm into it. Um, Just think of something that you're looking forward to and you want, you want to happen. Maybe... uh, uh, sleep <laughs> or tomorrow another day or maybe the end of the retreat or uh, being with somebody. Think of something that you want right now. okay? And just imagine it's just out of your reach. It's in the future, so it's out of your reach. And what I'd like you to do, you can open your eyes as you do this, and I'd like you, play along with me, keep your your butt on the chair or the cushion or the bench. And I'd like you to reach forward. And if you can reach forward enough, you'll have instant gratification. Okay? <laughs> so really go for it. Come on, really go for it. And feel how, you, how it is right now as you're reaching forward. And now understand it's not going to happen because it's in the future. And now very slowly come back come back, come back to become centered in this present moment. Can you feel the difference between this? A lot of people spend a lot of time in their minds like this. And this, sometimes it helps for your body to feel the difference. Oh, this moment is quite okay. It's quite enough. It's certainly a lot better than toppling forward like I was. You don't have to do that. And so this movement of seeing I don't have to do it and letting go, this is the movement from the second noble truth to the third noble truth. The cause of suffering the wanting mind, the end of suffering, 
letting go and just being here fully, completely. Letting go, letting, that's really what it comes down to. And I'll, I'll share with you um, a favorite passage I have of uh, Ajahn Sumedho's on letting go. <clears throat> he says, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than trying to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and then the Madhyamaka and the Prajnaparamita and get ordination in the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books and become a world's renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) Out of that sense of letting go and just being with things as they are, what the natural result of that is a feeling of um, enoughness, of fullness. As my, my son Adam, who's, uh, he's now 27 and a very uh, dedicated practitioner, he did one retreat and uh, uh, afterwards he said, I experienced a new understanding of, of wholeness, what, I, what I'm now calling abundant enoughness. Abundant enoughness. Isn't that beautiful? Where there's a sense of abundance and fullness and sufficiency. Oh, the, the Dharma is giving me just what I need in this moment. A few years ago, I, I visited uh, Ramdas in Hawaii and he was writing uh, about contentment. And I said, oh, cool. Um, Well, rather than having to wait for the book to come out, could you just tell me the gist of it? And he said, okay, I'll tell you the gist. Contentment, I've come to see, is plumbing the depths of this moment to plumb the depths of this moment. It's all here. This moment has all that you need to wake up and there is a fullness and a sense of connection and wholeness that is our true wealth, our greatest wealth. And when we plumb the depths of this moment, when we truly go to the depths, then it's simply just awareness perceiving 
reality. It's not me being content. Well, now I am content. It's just contentment happening. It's just awareness, awareness knowing itself. So I'll, I'll close with this poem by uh, Dana Falls. Awareness knowing itself, really the essence of contentment. Settle in the here and now. Reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief flood into every cell. Nothing to do, nothing to be, but what you are already. Nothing to receive, but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run toward. Just this breath, awareness, knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breath, awareness, waking up to truth. So let's sit for a moment. Plumb the depths of this moment. Let's do it together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.